life and art and the professional and the personal and the way they intertwine and they dance together. And I see that I used to ask questions like, why, how, I don't even ask questions anymore. I'm just like, this is a gift. I am supposed to learn something in all of these sectors. And in, in reality, in life, there is no separation. This is It's Okay That You're Not Okay. And I'm your host, Megan Devine. This week on the show, Tembe Locke, author of the memoir From Scratch and the hit Netflix series of the same name. Tembe joins me to talk about love and Hollywood and time and meaning. All the little things. <laughs> Settle in, everybody. All of that coming up right after this first break. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to the European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fear of the unknown is the greatest fear of all. And for millions of Americans, there is no greater unknown than what to do when faced with an Alzheimer's diagnosis. My name is Dana Torito, and my podcast, The Memory Whisperer, takes a closer look at Alzheimer's disease and those affected by it. Like many of you, I've experienced the disease firsthand. I've been an advocate and care partner for decades and have written extensively about the subject. Each week, I'll talk to people who've been personally affected by the disease and learn how they coped with it. Folks like TV personality Lisa Gibbons. Action is the antidote for fear. And nurse and dementia researcher Dr. Fayron Epps. We no longer can be silent. We have to speak up. We have to share our experiences so we can help each other and learn from each other. Listen to The Memory Whisper on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. 
Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Before we get started, one quick note. While we cover a lot of emotional, relational territory in our time here together, this show is not a substitute for skilled support with a licensed mental health provider or for professional supervision related to your work. Hey friends. So as has happened a lot of times on this season, I've known about today's guest for years. We just never actually met until this conversation. I first found Tembe Locke's work years before she wrote her best-selling book, From Scratch, back before the hit Netflix series, From Scratch, back when she had her very first blog called The Kitchen Widow. We talk about that first creative vehicle of hers in the show today and how flinging yourself out into the world, creatively speaking, can open pathways to a life you couldn't have dreamed of in those early days when you started out. You may have seen the hit Netflix show From Scratch based on Tembe's New York Times bestselling memoir. From Scratch, the book and the show centers on her life with her late husband Sato. From Italy to Los Angeles and back again, they mix love and food and in-laws and illness. Both the book and the show have been immensely popular. And to me, that really speaks to our collective need for love stories that aren't that usual, like everything worked out for the best Hollywood happy ending thing. This need that we have for stories that aren't all gloom and doom either. Now, Tembe manages to convey the truth about grief without slipping into either one of those outdated tropes, and you're going to hear all about that in our conversation. Tembe Locke is a writer, executive producer, and an accomplished actor. You will hear in our conversation that I was thrilled to learn that Tembe was in one of my very favorite shows of all time that most of you have probably not seen, Eureka from the Sci-Fi Channel. She's also on the hit show, Never Have I Ever, among other credits. And there's this really neat section in the conversation you're about to hear where Tembe talks about those roles and what was going on in her life when she recorded those shows and then what it's like seeing herself in them now. It's like this emotional archaeological dig via television. Fascinating. We also get into the challenges of creating a show based on deeply personal and emotional parts of your life, trying to stay true to that story while also protecting the tender parts of yourself, all while trying to make a show that other people will want to watch, something that will genuinely move people. As you'd imagine, juggling all of that stuff isn't always easy. Honestly, in every show, there's so much going on behind the scenes. All of your favorite shows, all of your favorite movies, friends. Real humans are doing real life just off stage. Anyway, you're going to hear all about it in my conversation with actor, writer, executive producer, and all around amazing human, Tembe Locke. I am so happy to have you here and to actually be able to see you and talk with you. And no one will be surprised that we've actually been chatting forever and could have been doing this hit record a long time ago. But here we are. Here we are. Here we are. I have been talking with a lot of people who who carry a loss with them into the conversation. And I, I started asking people to introduce us to their person. Mm. And I really love this. So before we get rolling with all of my questions, would you introduce Sato to us? Oh, my gosh. That's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you, first of all, for um, opening that space 
to do that, right? It's rare that someone even asks that question of you. And I always find it's a privilege to be able to bring Sato forward. I mean, he's always here in my sense. And I don't, we can get into that later, but I, you know, I, for me, his light is always within. And when I get to sort of shine it outward, I'm happy to do that. So Sato, my late husband, his resume would say Italian born chef and, (laughs) you know, lover of literature and uh, amateur guitar player, lover of newspapers, all of those things. He was a gentle, beautiful soul and he was a soulmate and a best friend, someone who made me look at the world in new ways and often through the prism of tiny, small moments. He was a tiny, small moments person Mm -hmm. and I can be a big picture person. And that ability for him to sort of synthesize down a moment or an experience or the meeting of a new person was, was a gift in my life. And he was the father of my, of our daughter. Yeah, he was cool. He was cool. <laughs> he could also be completely, you know, like he's Sicilian born. So he had a streak of like a kind of like incomparable pe- pessimism that could like run through everything. It was just like everything had a pathos yeah. to it. And that I found that like both hilarious and dramatic in the ways that, you know, we sometimes see on TV, um, but he could hold it lightly. So that was also yeah. nice. I love this. There's like so many directions I want to go with bringing him here into this space. One thing that I want to say, it's like, I think sometimes we sort of lionize the dead like you don't speak ill of the dead, you only say the good things. And it's like when you get to have a real conversation or when you get to introduce your person as the the totality of who they are, you know, after my partner died, I always felt like when I got to talk about him or heard somebody else talk about him, it made them become three-dimensional again. Oh, sure. Right? Absolutely. Shadow hated I'm laughing at it before I can even get it out of my mouth. Here he is in his three-dimensionality. You know how you call a number, a 1-800 number to like get something done, and then they've got all the prompts and you have to wait? That vexed him to no Mm. end. He just wanted to get to a human. And he was so impatient, so ridiculously impatient that, I, you know, it slammed down the phone and he'd be like, I can't. Da, da, da. And I was always like, who are you? You were a grown man five minutes ago and you got on a phone and they ask you to push two, three or four <laughs> and you lose your freaking mind. <laughs> so anyway, that's him in the 3D. Hi, me, everyone. <laughs> I think he's I'm laughing. Sure. I, he's laughing. I love this. It's a really good lead in to one of my questions here, like the The Hollywood way is to sort of two-dimensionalize complex stories, Mm. right? And so much of Hollywood, especially around grief stories, is like this transformation narrative of these terrible things happen to you that we only pan on for a second. And then we come into this great transformation where our heroine learned hard lessons that only this tragedy could help them learn. Like, all of this terrible stuff. So I, I wonder, having started with the the realness and the three dimension what was that like for you coming into what can be like a two-dimensional transformation narrative hollywood arc i don't think any writer really comes to the table thinking 
I want to bring this to the 2D. <laughs> like, like, you know, most Please distill like, me to nothing. I want to get it. Yeah. Yeah. But there is something in the predominant sort of narrative of what's going to be con- easily consumptible for people, right? You know, Hollywood's very fascinated with like having a sense of optimism at the end. That's what makes it different than French film. <laughs> right? French that's film, it. Maybe I need to make French films. Out. Maybe that's my problem. French films can hang out in the existential and like leave you on a note. Like the whole film can end and you're like, wait, huh? <laughs> like what, 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 what? You know, whereas the, the sense of closure and wrapping up and like the need to have someone sort of finish that 90 minute, two hour experience with a sense of optimism, that core drive runs deep in Hollywood. And there's times when that is necessary and it actually is helpful. But around grief narratives, I don't know that it's always so helpful. And I think it's done us a big, big, big disservice collectively. And it's very reductive. So when we, when I, our team, but really certainly me as the person who had lived my own grief and who'd written about it in a book and was now a part of a team adapting it, I was very like, we can't do that thing. (laughs) And yet, as will happen, you're going to get notes along the way. And I mean, notes from your producing and studio partners who are trying to sort of guide the ship in a different way because they're thinking of their bigger audience. People are also tapping into their own unprocessed stuff. And the idea of going near it on the page scares them. And they're like, ooh, how is that going to come off? And we don't know. Is that tonally right? Oh, that could be a little too messed. That could turn people off. Maybe they'll... So they're always trying... So there's this tug and pull, right, between the creators and the writers, what are the needs and interests and demands of <laughs> the people who are paying for the product that you're making, <laughs> to say it very bluntly. Um, somewhere in there, there's a struggle. So for us, I always came back to the thing I'm making, if someone were to watch this who had never grieved someone I mean, in a, in a profound you know, way, like they hadn't had through that, that profound loss, right? And we all know when we've had that, that first deeply profound loss. I wanted the show to be some sort of a really honest guide to that. And I said, let the magic, if you will, the Hollywood magic, the tinsel, the light, the, let that live in the surroundings, but that the core people, the, the people themselves, let the sort of quote unquote aspirational qualities, because of of television and film, let that live in the set design, let it live in the music, right? But let the actual human experiences be as raw as possible. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, I would hope that who that the viewer would be like, oh, 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 that, oh, okay, and be kind of stopped in their tracks, not in a way that makes them run and turn it off, but actually makes them lean in. That's what we attempted to do. That's what I was hoping to do. That was the, I felt like if I could just, if that becomes my North Star, I'm just going to keep reaching for that. And if I can get as close to it as possible, then I will have done the best. Our team will would have done the best that we could do. That's a very long answer, but it's my way of saying that there is a disservice that we have done in Hollywood. And by the way, we've done this in stories around people of color. We've done it in stories around women. We've done it in many, many stories. Grief is just one of the ways. And I think we are in an era now of a desire for more honest and real storytelling. 
and that includes grief. Yeah, that's a perfect answer. Because to me, a, a lot of the speaking and teaching and, and occasionally ranting that I do is like, we've only got two options in our storytelling, right? We've got like, no matter what happened to you, everything works out for the best and, and everything is glorious and sunshine and, and puppy dogs and the, the widowed person finds love again and that makes everything better. Or we've got this depressing, stuck in a corner, nobody wants to see this. Like, And if those are your only two options, you're going to choose optimism, even if it's fake. Absolutely. Yeah. Listen, I am someone who... Dear Lord, I hang out in the gray so much. I'm like, <laughs> can I see the color board again? Because I know that, <laughs> there is know, something. The gray, the, the gray is kind of where I live. So though that sort of binary look at it's either full optimism or you're, you know, crumpled under a table and you can't come out, that just doesn't resonate with me. Because for one thing, I can touch on both of those moments in a single day. In a half an hour. Yeah. Right. And a whole spectrum of things in the middle. So let's see all of those colors and let's make space for the full totality of the human experience, even if there is not a sense of resolution, this this like addiction to resolution mm. <laughs> that we have. I'm like, mm, I don't know that a lot gets resolved in a lifetime. It's so weird that addiction to resolution and that all so many of our stories show us that resolution is possible. And so many of us insist that other people find resolution in their stuff. But like, who actually lives in that thing? It's like, there are some things that can get resolved, but there are some things that don't. And those stories are the stories that we need. How do you live inside things that don't get resolved, that don't get a Hollywood ending? Yeah, or they get resolved and get, and by the way, there's something called spiral learning. You circle back to that yeah. moment again at a new place in your life and suddenly you're like, oh, I'm working on that mm -hmm. again. Oh, that showed mm -hmm. up again. So resolution is an quote unquote, it's an ongoing mm -hmm. experience. You resolve it for that moment and then a new yes. moment and a new set of circumstances and a new you appears and suddenly you're doing the work all over yeah. again. And that is called living. <laughs> yes, it is. And I, I really do like as a, you know, as a writer, as a storyteller, like I come back to this too, like the power of telling the truth is compelling theater, right? Telling mm. the truth is compelling theater. And I mean theater in the broad sense of like Hollywood and television and books and like all, all of the theatrical things. But like the, that those are the stories we need because we really take we take our stories and we we learn how to do life from them, right? I love what you said. You said something about like the, the layers in the answers to this question. Like I know that a lot of people, when we're trying to figure out how to be supportive for somebody going through any kind of hard time, whether that's grief or illness or lost my job or whatever, like we think about what have I seen in movies? In the movies, my job oh, is to sure. cheer you up. In the movies, we're going for you coming back to normal and not being so sad anymore. So like when we lie in the media, when we lie in our storytelling, we train people the wrong way to love each other. Absolutely. And I knew that I, for whatever reason in this lifetime, things lined up in a way that I had this opportunity with making from scratch on a global platform. 
And I thought, well, doggone it, I'm going to take my shot and I'm going to try to get as close to truth as possible because I don't want to be a part of the canon that is constantly putting out just this sort of middling, you know, um, <laughs> I don't know if the word schlock comes to mind, but like, it's like, like, I'm just like, I just can't, I can't. And I know because I, and I'm going to truly date myself, but many of our listeners, I'm sure your listeners will know. I was a child who, when the film Terms of Endearment came out, I can't tell you how many times I saw that film as a child. Now, one would think that's not a film for children, <laughs> And yet there was something about the honesty in that movie. And when we were breaking the story for From Scratch, when we were trying to take a book, crack it open and make it into eight episodes, we talked about certain key moments in film and television that we had seen collectively as writers that each of us responded to as if that was truth. Okay, what element of that could live in our mm. show, right? Terms of Endearment is one of those shows that came, came, films that came up. So you're right insofar as the things we see, they leave an imprint on us, right? So my young psyche saw, particularly, I'm going to just break it down the scene with Shirley MacLaine and Deborah Winger when she's in the hospital and she's dying and the mother's like, yeah. you know, like I was like, oh, a lioness fighting the system, asking for good care a mother and a daughter, the kind of breaking apart of a relationship to open up a new chapter for both of them. You know, it was like all of it I got as a child. That's the power of storytelling. And I cannot stress the importance of that now at a time when there is so much loss and death in the world. I mean that post-pandemic, if there is such a thing, because COVID is still a very ongoing and unfolding experience. We've just normalized a certain level of death now in the world, right, to this to the virus. There's the death around climate change. I mean, I could mm -hmm. go on. There's the death around whole systems that don't sort of support and work. So we're all experiencing these deep griefs, and we need to be able to talk openly and honestly. This is the thing is that, like, this stuff isn't siloed. As much as mm -hmm. the medical industry or the psychiatry industry or the media industry want to silo these things, they are all the same cloth. Like the ways that we portray any kind of hardship in books mm -hmm. or on the screen, like this trickles out into life, right? Like we don't know how to talk about the cascading and multifaceted grief of the last several years. We don't know how to talk about the grief that is unspooling because of the political batshitness in the world and the rise of fascism. We don't know how to talk about grief in communities of color. We don't know how to talk we don't know how to talk about any of this stuff. And there are many, many reasons for that. Like I could talk about that forever, but this is not about me. But like there there is such a void in our understanding how of how to talk about these complex issues without reducing them or bypassing them. Again, like we come back to that binary option of we can either reduce it to something that has a resolution and a happy ending, or we can just not look at it. And unfortunately, we are just not looking at it. Oh, I completely, I completely agree. And it's hard to look mm -hmm. at, but it's necessary. And those of us who 
have the ability to do that work. And by the way, it doesn't have to even be in media. Mm -hmm. I have dear friends who, and I even, even some people who are not close to me, but people, strangers I would meet who, you know, in, and I'm thinking specifically in hospital settings when Sada was very ill, who just would like cut through it at the soda machine. Yeah. just could see like I was that caregiver who was stressed beyond stressed and they would just drop a nugget of knowledge that was just truth right and then they'd go back into their world and I could carry that truth with me I had the privilege of dear friends who had walked similar paths who were you know decades ahead of me who would take me by the hand and say let me give you an insight into the truth so i think it's this combination of people we meet in the 3d every day in our quotidian lives and what's happening in media and i hope that we and 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 by the way i will say you know i'm not a tiktok person <laughs> but i will say that even if somebody for a nanosecond and i think the 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 sort of medium there is short format if that if you get 30 seconds of truth even through a format like TikTok, and perhaps it opens up a portal for you to ask more questions and then you go to more substantive sources for help. Okay, great TikTok, you just did something nice, right? You brought a little kernel of truth into someone's day that might open up something else. So we, I think, have to be excavators in our lives for truth, right? And if we can offer that to someone at a grocery store, at the post office, or pumping gas, and we're just like, you know, do that. I try to do it when I'm in situations where I can, I kind of sense someone's a caregiver, and there's some mm-hmm, signs sure. around that. Sure. <laughs> I can recognize the mm-hmm. signs and I might just like, oh, here's here's this little bit. And it may be useful or maybe not. They can only decide. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I was given that gift. And so I try to offer it again. And I certainly try to do it in my yeah. work if, 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 if when when and where I yeah. can. It's that power of acknowledgement. Right. Oh, and telling sure. the truth. And we, we think that that tool of a small nugget of acknowledgement of the truth of somebody's situation like that can't possibly be enough and it is everything right oh my gosh it's it's little you follow the mm-hmm. breadcrumbs that's what mm-hmm. i say. i mean you're following your bre- the breadcrumbs and and for me i know i had the privilege of like being in uh i and i write about this in the book it's like being with my mother-in-law who had a whole different understanding yeah. of grief right first of all the her age her culture it, so she was a teacher mm-hmm. for me around mm-hmm. grief and that was really really valuable in a way that no one else in my life could teach me there's a lot in there also about sovereignty and agency and boundaries right i love that you said i'm going to drop this nugget here but you only pick it up if it feels good to you oh right? absolutely absolutely yeah. because there is a lot of unsolicited quote unquote <laughs> so advice much. that comes so much. And I don't need that no either. Needs it. So, I, so it's a very fine line. Like I kind of like sometimes if I, cause I'm like, oh, do I real, do I say this? Is this, is this, you know, I have to try mm-hmm. to check myself a little bit. Right. But I also often say, I just feel my heart is called to say this. If it resonates, if not like go with, go with God, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, yeah. You, know you be you, me. right? Like, And there were times when people would say stuff to me that in the moment I was like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, four years later, something would come. I'd be like, oh, that's what that person was talking about. Mm -hmm. 
oh, now I get it. Now I'm ready to take mm -hmm. that in. But it, you know, and so you never know. You just never, 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 yeah. never know. You never know. Um, but it is, it's true that we have to have the agency to select what is useful for us now, what is additive, what is expansive in our lives, what is uplifting. And we take that and we take the next mm -hmm. step. I don't even waste time anymore when people give me crazy. I'm just like, okay, thank you. Yep. Move on. Moving yep. on. Moving Bless on. your heart, right? Like, Bless your heart. <laughs> Bless your heart. Bless we your love heart. this. I, I want to yeah. go with so much of what we've been talking about is like that that mix of the the personal and the professional and how those intertwine. So mm -hmm. if it's okay with you, I want to dive into that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, let's so do it. So one of the things yeah. that I learned about you that I did not know is that oh goodness you were in one of my favorite series of all time i was eureka oh my gosh yeah okay so here's the thing well thank you mm -hmm. for that the way that i screeched when i saw that can i just say okay continue i loved being on that show and that show was a savior for me in many many mm -hmm. ways i'm going to tell you in the like practical professional uh -huh. way and then i'll tell you in like the emotional Great. way Practically, it arrived in my life at a time when I was in the crux of caregiving. Asada was super sick, going through lots of chemotherapy. I had a child who was under the age of five at home, and I had not been working. And as we know, currently, as we're recording this, we're in the middle of an industry-wide <laughs> writer and actor strike for exactly these reasons, right? And I remember when the audition material came in for Eureka to play the role of Grace, I was like, I cannot do this. And I don't know, I just had a, it was like my my system was like, I can't do it. And I remember talking to my acting coach because I coached on it and she was like, you know what? Go in and dedicate this performance to somebody you love. Forget about whether you get it or not, just dedicate it to someone you love. I go in, I do the thing, I get a call back. I do another one, I get the call back. Before you know it, I'm on set and I have the job. It filmed in Vancouver. I lived in LA and it required that I was away for periods of time. So I had to create. Suddenly this job made me. So I was earning money now, which was great. Earning my health care. Great. Needed all those things. But it made me have to build a community at home because I had to be away to work. So suddenly I had to instantly call upon friends and I had people who'd come over to do my daughter's hair. I couldn't do it. People who were bringing food because my husband could drive people who drive. And so this TV series gifted me in two ways. I was carrying so much by myself alone and suddenly working forced me to shift into a new gear and a community emerged. I mean, I emerged because I had to seek them out, you know, mm -hmm. actively seek them out. And that ultimately became a gift because it was a teaching tool for me. I think I had become so conditioned that I had to carry everything on my back solo. Suddenly I was like, oh my God, my artist gets to sort of soar mm. and explore and be with these amazing other actors and creators on set. My family isn't actually falling apart maybe it's actually good for them to have to have other you know energies and so the show was very additive in my life plus then the writing is so good on that show and i'm playing the role of a woman who loses her husband and then he lives in these multiple timelines which i was like i didn't even get the full wisdom of that until years later when my own husband died 
And I was watching the series with my daughter and suddenly the role that I played had a whole new meaning because she was asking these deeper questions of herself, which is where does he live in time and space? And that's a big, big question. I mean, that, so it's sci-fi for those listeners who don't know. Eureka is clearly a sci-fi show. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, it's, it is a really good show. I don't know. that. Anyway, I love that you love it. I loved doing it. I love getting to play opposite Joe. And it's, that show lives in a very, it lived, it, it came at a very particular time in my life and taught me a lot of lessons. Mm. That continue to unfold in the true sense of sci-fi work. Yes. Yes. Right. And it reminds me of what, you know, echoes what you just said a minute ago, that something that happened, when it happened, you understood it in one way, and then it continued to unfold and have a different, something else about it gets revealed. And there, it's not like, I think sometimes we, we, we apply that reductive model here to like, oh, you weren't ready back then. Like, no, I was a different person back then. Huh. And this hits different now. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, good pieces of literature, they're great books. And, you know, take a favorite book that you had as a teen or as an, in your in college, let's say, and return to it every 10 years of your life. Yeah. Reread that book every 10 years. It will mean something different. You will meet the text in a different way. And I say, you know, that that was my experience with 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 Eureka. I mean, yeah. I'm sure if I watch it again in 10 years, it'll mean something. Yeah, something that new. reminds me. So I loved Salinger when I was in high school and Franny and Zoe was my favorite book loved that book and I remember that I read it shortly before Matt died and it was a completely different book for me but one mm -hmm. of the things that it gave me was a window to that teenage self oh, right? I know it told me things about her that I'd forgotten mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right and I hear that in what you're saying, that when you come back and you watch Eureka and you see yourself playing the role of a widow, what it tells you about who you were then and who you might be now and makes you curious about what's next. Yeah, and it's so deep for me because I'm watching a younger version of myself who is pre-widowed. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh. So I'm not just watching the character, I'm watching the person playing the character knowing that she is about to have a major turning point in her life, you know? And I'm thinking about like, you know, and there's certain scenes I'm watching and I'm like, oh, I remember that scene when we shot that. And I just called home because, you know, Sato had, was coming back from chemo and like, oh, you know, I, I remember having to bring a little bit of that into the scene because it was such a big thing happening in my personal life that I couldn't separate it from my work that day. And I thought, you know, all I can do is integrate it. Yeah. So anyway, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Yeah, you may not use any of that stuff, but it's there. I am using all of it because I <laughs> love that show. But there's a theme here, right? One of the things that I do when I'm getting ready to talk with somebody is look for a theme. It's what my brain does. Mm -hmm. And you've got you've got Grace and Eureka, and then you've got Never Have I Ever, <laughs> which is also a show centered around grief. I think a lot more so in the first season. Sure, sure. But it's everywhere in that show. So you were a different person when you started Never Have I Ever. Yes. So here's the crazy thing about Never Have I Ever is, again, it was one of those things where like, 
and maybe this says more about me as like, you know, an actress, but like the part came through the, the audition material came through and I'm like, okay, what, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to make this special for me? Right. And the thing about doing a Mindy Kaling project, and this is not uncommon with high, what are expected to be high profile shows or shows where you don't want the information to get out too quickly in sort of like in the internet world of it all. So they they don't release the whole scripts. I got just my material with a little bit of context around the storyline. That was it. So what that means is it wasn't until in the middle of the pandemic, which is when the show dropped on Netflix, because I filmed it pre and then suddenly the world changed and we're all in lockdown. I'm sitting on the couch with my daughter, who is the same age as the daughter that I have on screen in the show. And that's when I realized the show is about grief. So I'm watching it in real time. Wow. Because I didn't know. I didn't have the privilege of having read all the scripts. I read the scripts that I was in. So I didn't know the larger storyline because it had been sort of underlocking. Sure. And so then I'm like, holy, I am losing it on the couch with my daughter. And my daughter's watching it like, cringing because the mom that I play on screen is absurd. I mean, let's face it, Elise is absurd. <laughs> She's an absurd mother. I love playing her because I get to dial up all of that stuff. But again, life and art and the professional and the personal and the way they intertwine and they dance together. And I see that. I used to ask questions like, why, how? I don't even ask questions anymore. I'm just like, this is a gift. I am supposed to learn something in all of these sectors. And in in reality, in life, there is no separation. There's no separation between, you know, if I go as big as between this world and the other world, this, you know, this side of the veil and the other, there's just no separation. It's all this experience that we are all living through and having. And I find that in life. I find it in my art. And I, I try to integrate them consciously when and where I can. And I'm grateful when I have the awareness of, oh, let me try to integrate these two things. Whenever I feel like a sense of separation now, I'd say, I got to find a way to integrate. I don't like this. I, I don't, I need to integrate these experiences. Mm. And I'm not, I'm not always, takes me sometime a minute before I f- am ready to do that or I have give myself permission but it's really valuable when I, when I can, you know, it's really valuable. And I think grief taught me that. I think I really felt like for the longest time, my work was one thing, my personal life and my grief was something else. And then I realized, you know what? It's all my life. That's right. You are, (laughs) as I read several times in things about from scratch, you are living the source material, right? Like we're always living the source material. (laughs) Always. Always. Always, 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 always. And, you know, yeah. So that, yeah, never have I ever was a true, true gift. And the other gift in it is to be a part of, again, a show, something that's in the zeitgeist, in this case, the global zeitgeist, which is pointing an arrow to say, it's okay to grieve and it can look like this. And, you know, I I just feel honored that like some part of me got to be a part of that. That's my ministry. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And, it, you know, I, when I was widowed, so 2009, the landscape of grief, 
both in like the the way that the medical and the psychological profession talked about it, but specifically how media culture talked about it. Like it was a wasteland. So I've been able to see the developmental arc, right? The, The narrative cultural arc of what is changing and how are our portrayals changing? And I, I think this is true, not just in grief, it's across the board that we're starting to see our storylines reflect the truth of existence in a lot more ways. And you're a part of that work. I mean, it didn't Absolutely. get- Absolutely, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. You've been, you've been laying Thank the you. track. You've been laying the track for years and it is a part of the collective change. And yeah. that is so important. I remember first discovering you and be like, holy moly, there's a, just a, there's just a cut through it honesty here, mm-hmm. right? And, and a kind of um, to be truly brazen in that way and to sort of, you know, keep that drumbeat of honesty going is really, really valuable. And it's not easy to do. But I think collectively and culturally, humans need someone who's keeping the drumbeat of truth even while people are doing other percussive instruments and they're doing wind instruments and, you know, whatever, but someone's got to be beating the drum of truth or the symphony. It don't work. I mean, I don't know if there's drums in a symphony. Clearly I'm not a musical person. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm going with the drum beat because it's true. I love that. Thank you. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to the European political systems class at Baruch College. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fear of the unknown is the greatest fear of all. And for millions of Americans, there is no greater unknown than what to do when faced with an Alzheimer's diagnosis. My name is Dana Torito, and my podcast, The Memory Whisperer, takes a closer look at Alzheimer's disease and those affected by it. Like many of you, I've experienced the disease firsthand. I've been an advocate and care partner for decades and have written extensively about the subject. Each week, I'll talk to people who've been personally affected by the disease and learn how they coped with it. Folks like TV personality Lisa Gibbons. Action is the antidote for fear. And nurse and dementia researcher Dr. Fayron Epps. We no longer can be silent. We have to speak up. We have to share our experiences so we can help each other and learn from each other. Listen to The Memory Whisperer on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. 
I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math and Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, before we get back to my conversation with Tembe, I want to talk with you about creative approaches to grief. Now, both Tembe and I have written about grief turning our experiences into books and television shows and podcasts. But even before any of those things happened, writing was how we survived grief itself. Actually, I should just speak for myself. Writing was how I survived. Now, writing isn't going to cure anything, but it can help you hear your own voice inside whatever's going on in your life, and that's incredibly powerful. My 30-day Writing Your Grief course is still one of the best things I've ever made for you with all of the things that I've created. It's still one of the best things I've ever made. There are a lot of grief writing workshops out there with prompts like, tell us about the funeral. Writing your grief is not like that. The prompts are deeper. They are more nuanced. They're designed to get you into your own actual story, really into your heart and out of your brain. You can read all about the Writing Your Grief course at refugingrief.com backslash W-Y-G. That's W-Y-G for writing your grief. You can see a sample prompt from the course and get writing your own story in minutes. The course is self-guided, so you can start right now. Refugingrief.com backslash W-Y-G, or find the link in the show notes. Okay, back to the fabulous Tembe Lak. You've mentioned a few times here, and it certainly intersects with me, but like this service, especially in the in the wider context of all of the things that we've been talking about, you've said about from scratch that making this show was the hardest and highest form of creativity in service to love that you ever could have imagined. Yeah, you said it right. I mean, that's it. It was, yeah. I mean, I get emotional just thinking about it mm -hmm. because I think I'm still processing the experience. <laughs> and quite frankly, I might be for the rest of my life. But I, I did the, 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 the depths to which it was difficult. And I, I mean that in, in the sense of what it required professionally to, it was a hard show to make just on the purely production level of like, what does it mean to make shows in Hollywood? It was a hard show. It was a hard show. We made it in the middle of a pandemic. It had three languages. It was in two countries, in five cities. It required a lot. It was not an easy shoot, okay? Then there's the emotional piece that I am processing because I am kind of a, I was a doula, a, 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 a kind of a, a Sherpa, you know, to 200 people trying to tell the story that was essentially my story, but it had to be anchored in my truth, but be universal enough to be resonate with everyone. So then there's this whole sort of 
creative and intellectual piece and emotional piece that's happening. And I showed up every day to step into my past, my very immediate visceral past, sometimes with my own, you know, the set dressing would have artifacts from my own home, right? Inside of the set dressing. Okay. Which is not easy thing to learn what's doing, but I felt like it had to have a visceral truth to it that I, the only way I knew to capture that was to put as much reality in the frame as possible. And that meant offering up literally pieces, tangible pieces of the lived experience into the sc- on, on screen. So there was that that was happening. There was the work with my sister where I'm working mm-hmm. intimately with a family member and we're navigating what does it mean to work together as siblings? <laughs> Which is beautiful, yeah. by the way. It was deepening, but it was also, there were so many multiple, many, many mm-hmm. layers that were unfolding daily. And every day when it was hard, and I mean hard, I'd go back to my home or sometimes if we were shooting on location, a hotel, and I would just go, why am I doing this again? Yeah. Okay. What was the original purpose of this? What's the North Star? And I thought this was in service to some kind of love. And that would give me enough juice, enough clarity enough grace to show up the next day and do it again and then do it again and then do it again. And I think when we do things in service of love, and I am not talking about romantic love, although I can it's include part of it. Sure. It's part of it. I am talking about the bigger loves, right? That is incredibly clarifying as a purity of purpose. That's what I was, I was like, what is, and I did, I asked myself a lot, why am I here? I asked that so many days on set. Mm. <laughs> Literally, I was like, why am I here? Exactly. Why uh, did I sign up for this evisceration? Yeah, why did I sign up for this? What do I have to offer everyone here? Would this happen without me here? Because if, if I don't need to be here, why am I putting myself through this? Yeah. So there always had to be some real reason for me to be on set in a particular day. And by the way, there were a couple of days where I don't need to be here. And I wasn't, I excused myself. But I was there, gosh, 95% of the time because I always found that there was some element that I could add that no one else had, some piece of the truth that if it just had a little sprinkle of this, it might make the show better. And I hear now from viewers, people will say little things back to me, things that the moments that they enjoyed. And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad we got that in. Yeah. I'm so glad we were able to do that. Yeah. It's such a unique position to be in where you have created something beautiful and useful from something truly devastating. And that dissonance. Hmm is a thing. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. And I don't, you know, there are people perhaps better suited to discuss this in more clinical terms of what is, you know, and I'm not a psychologist. I have not studied it. So I can't speak to that. Uh, There's a term for it where people talk about sort of like resilience post-trauma or something like that. There's a whole like study. Post-traumatic growth. There you go. That's what it's called. That's that's the clinical term. Mm, Yeah. Like, okay, I don't, I can't speak to any of that. Cause don't know about all that. I'm still trying to figure my own life out. <laughs> but, but you have articulated that when we can honor and name 
the moments where we've been able to take something difficult, a loss, and transmute it in some way. I remember talking to a minister once who said, I have a parishioner who works on cars every weekend. And he doesn't just work on his car. He works on his neighbor's cars. And it is his grief work. He and his father had worked on cars when he was growing up. His father had passed. And what he chose to do with that pain was to work on neighbor's car. Like if somebody's car broke down, he'd be like, can I change? I'll change your oil. To me, that is an act of beauty, right? It's not, yeah, it's not a TV show, but it's the same damn thing. It's like, I am using, I guess is the verb that comes to mind, or I am stepping into my lived experience, my hurt and doing something of service with it. And that can be changing someone's oil in their car. And it's beautiful. The image that comes up for me as you, as you talk about that, you know, we started out saying how like, you know, Hollywood loves the transformation narrative, bad things happen to help you grow and become your deepest and best self. And it's easy to reduce everything you just said to that transaction. Mm-hmm. But that's not what I heard you say. What I heard you say is, can we tell ourselves the truth that something big and deep just happened? And how does the truth of that intersect with who we are, who we've been, mm-hmm. who this person, if you're grieving the loss of a person, who this, what this relationship is? And is there a way that I can make a life that serves that in a way that feels aligned with yes. everything I am and everything I know. That is a very different way of describing that <laughs> than, hey, you used this terrible thing to become your true self, right? Like that's, or no. or that no. martyrdom no. matrix of like, <laughs> I remember the night of Matt's funeral, people coming up to me and saying, you're gonna be such a good therapist because of this. You're gonna help so many people. I'm like, okay, first of all, really bad timing. But second of all, like what you're saying there is that I wasn't a good enough therapist before and somebody had to die in order for me to be of use. And also that that sort of deeply entrenched, you are only valuable if you are of service to others, which is just, I mean, there's there's so much wrong with that. But this is again, like one of those, one of those gray areas, like just stop applying binary shit to humans. It doesn't work. But that, that whole area of like, what does living with this, whatever this is, what is living with this in the most true way for you and who you are look like? Absolutely. Because thank you. First of all, you said that way better than I did. (laughs) And I will add to this, that this service piece, you know, sometimes in the reductive way of looking at things, people like, oh, you know, you did the service and now you're better. I can tell you right now, I would do the act of service. I would show up on set in service of love. And then I'd go home and be a hot Christmas mess, right? It wasn't like I was somehow newly evolved. I was just like in the moment and I was in my own unfolding. And what I shared earlier about the person who, you know, changes the oil on the neighbor's car, I often, when I think of that story, think about, and what was the walk back to his house like after he changed yes. the Yes. and getting back into bed and opening the fridge in his house because he's still sitting then with the grief. Mm-hmm. For a moment, he was able to show up in service of it, and yet he still carries it. Servicing it doesn't mean you've alleviated yourself of grief. The grief doesn't sort of go into the into vapor and disappear because you've now employed it 
as an act of right. service. Right. I still grieve Sato every day, even though I made this TV show. Mm-hmm. Right? And and I, you know, I, I there are whole scenes that I I I don't ever have to watch again ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, we are just in the moments we're in. And just because you quote unquote use your grief or you serve others doesn't mean that you still don't feel crazy and still feel profound losses a sense of profound loss that you feel in the gray. I love the spectrum of being human in this, right? And the permission giving and the, I go, I go back to that sort of like the, the transactional analysis thing of like, you did this thing and now you should feel better, which loops back to what we were talking about with like the old way of telling stories reinforced that, right? I remember, I think it's in the beginning of my book, or maybe it's not, maybe it's just in something that I was saying. And I remember saying pretty early on in my own grief, I'm like, if I ever get married again, no one will ever know about it because I don't want them to think I'm all better. And also as a grieving person, I remember when I was reading grief books as a new, as a newly widowed person, I was 38 when Matt died. And I remember I would flip to the back of the book and see if the author was married. And if they had remarried, I wouldn't read their book. Because I was like, you don't understand me, right? <laughs> I have so much to say on this. <laughs> Lay it on and, me. Uh, well, I don't know if you hear the bird that's warbling outside. He's literally communing with us because he must be feeling this too, or she, I don't know. There's a bird outside on the Is tree. Is it a mockingbird? Because anyway. mockingbirds always have a lot to say. Okay, anyway. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I too, so similarly, like was so... I don't need to be with you and your story of remarriage. I was like, whatever that is, good Godspeed, good for you. Yeah. Not my path, not my reality. I don't need that teaching. And I don't need any teaching that's pointing <laughs> toward this is the thing where you go, because I don't know that I need that in my life. This, yeah. So I don't know that I'm going to have that. I don't even know if I want that. And Oh, there's so much. It's like, it's not about replacing this other person. It's not like, I know how special any kind of intense human connection is. It's it just, the goal isn't to just sort of go out and replicate that. I, I couldn't even understand that. Right. Yeah, yeah. But so many books were like about that. And it was a selling tool in many grief books. It's a big publishing selling tool of like, well, see what they've done. So mm-hmm. you can follow whatever they did and you'll get there. Yep. And like, that's insane. Mm-hmm. That's not a thing. So I was very clear in writing from scratch. And when I wrote from scratch, full disclosure, I am remarried now. Mm -hmm. I was not when I wrote from scratch. In fact, I just started dating when Mm -hmm. I started to write the book. So I thought that was going to be fun. I'm like, hi, I'm dating you. And I'll see you on the weekend after I spent all week writing about my dead husband. Good luck to you. (laughs) It's such a good sorting metric. (laughs) So anyway, I wrote the book, Robert, who I was dating then, who, with whom I'm now partner married, it was a very particular path to walk. And at a certain point, I said, here's the thing. You're stepping into a full story that is, you're marrying not only me in seventh grade and me, you know, <laughs> as a toddler and me, you know, in high school, you're, you're partnered with me who married Sato when I was 25 years old who became a mother with this man, like you're marrying all of that. Just like I'm marrying every part of you 
from. And so let's just get to know all of that and see what happens. And if we can't get to know all of that, then this doesn't have to happen because I don't know any other way to do it. So really the goal after loss cannot be, we just all have to repartner. That is the most absurd. It's so absurd. Thing I have ever heard in my life. Should that happen? If you want that to happen. And if you meet up in time and space with a partner who has the desire and capacity and curiosity to want to do that with you and you want to do that with them, then perhaps let's see what happens, right? But dear Lord, this this thing of, you know, putting that on people, I am not here for it. And I get, I recognize that people look to me now as someone yeah. who's repartnered, be like, hey, Tempe did it. Let me see. I'm like, good luck with that. Cause I'm still figuring it out. Like I'm, I, okay, yes. All I can say is that it is possible. Love after loss is possible. That's all I can say it, 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 because it actually is. I am living proof of that, but the how to, or like that, that's the goal. Because by the way, that love can show up in so many ways. It doesn't have to show up in partnership. That's one way the love that you got, that you can show up in the world. It can show up in so many different ways. It's not about you need to be remarried. Right. It's such a weird requirement too. Like it, like the holding up of heteronormativity and that partnership is the only valid form of adult existence. Like all, there's so much in that. And then we get into the like, human beings are replaceable and just like plug a different person in and then we're all good again. There's just, there's so much in there. And I love the transparency and the honesty with which you live this additional love story. Mm -hmm. And, and by the way, and also keeping, you know, being in contract with, with my husband to say, you are not some new chapter. Like you are not just some like, Hey, and now the next character comes into this play you have your own and we have our own unfolding and story that is there's connective tissue there but it's not just like a book into some other story Do you, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. giving us ourselves the grace and space to find our path yeah human beings are so complicated and so complex and that's actually where the good stuff is i think so is basically what we're saying so it was actually pretty recently on social media. You wrote that for a while, your um, ability to imagine felt dulled and that you are stepping into or inviting yourself into a season of radical imagination. So can you tell me what that looks like or what you're talking about? Like I didn't, I like, I took it completely out of context. Mm. So I'm going to say it again here. You recently wrote that for a while, your ability to imagine had felt dulled. And one of the next posts, or even later in that post, you said, I can see now that the very act of being willing to imagine was its own kind of salvation. Yeah. In terms of grief, mm -hmm. there were so many days when it was subsistence living. What do I need to get through today? I am not trying to imagine next Thursday, let alone my life in five years. Not even a thing or what I want to do, or whatever I've got. It's, I need to just 
be. And I need the grace to be. And that was exactly what I needed at the time. Other stages of my grief, I'd get a glimpse of like, huh, what if an opening, an aperture around or a desire, an imagining of something else that I might want to add new into my life that had never been there before. And I call that the gift of imagination, right? Being able to imagine, um, you know, I'll be very literal in saying there was um, times, especially as a grieving mother, where I could not imagine beyond the moment I was in with my child. And then sometimes I would allow myself to imagine me, let's say, at her college graduation. Ah, And it just would like a little bit of sunshine would like flow into my heart at just the possibility of that. Right. And it got me through the day. So that's where imagination was a salvation. I think what I meant in the post and what I mean about the season of my life that I'm in now is that I understand the power of imagination, that to be able to imagine and to give over to imagining is a radical act of salvation because it is saying, I want more from life. Oh, what might that look like? Oh, who might be a part of that? Oh, it becomes a way through. It doesn't change your today, but it's, a, it's holding what is root, what is true and happening right now. And also, and yet, <laughs> being able to imagine what could be. And there was a time before when I thought, well, I just, this just is what it is. I'm not even going to think about imagining something else. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I, it's something I'm experiencing. It's something that I'm unfolding. It's something I'm putting language around it. But the best way I can say it is that to be able to give myself the permission to imagine. And the fact that I, we're talking now was because I created this thing called the kitchen widow, which was an imagining of something that I might, that what if I did create something? that could speak to my particular corner of my own lived experience of grief using media, filming, recipes, food. This was like this little concoction of my little corner of the internet that spoke to sort of my understanding of me processing things. That was an act, that was an act of imagination. It was pure imagination. And it ultimately saved me. The fact that I gave, allowed myself to imagine this corner of the universe that was unlike anything I'd seen, but that was right for me. <laughs> and it opened up many doors. And so I'm hoping now to step into a season, or I am stepping into a season of my life that wherein I am allowing my imagination, I'm inviting it. I'm welcoming it. I'm getting curious about well, what what's hanging? What's what's over in the imagination space? What what does she want to do over there? That could be interesting. And who knows what the hell it'll open up? Maybe some good shit will come out of it. I don't know, but it didn't hurt me. It's free to imagine. Imagining is fucking free, and that's powerful. And I think about my ancestors. They had to radically imagine a state of freedom beyond that in, that they knew. That radical act of freedom is why I'm here. That radical act of imagination is why I'm here. They could see something that they knew they might and never actually live themselves, but they could seed it forward in their acts of generosity, 
in seeding things for the future that would become, I mean, I could, I could really like, I could unpack this a lot, but imagination matters. It does matter. And it can be an act of salvation and transformation in small and in big ways. I'm so glad I asked that question. I'm so glad. No, I'm still like thrilled you asked it because it's also making me think about it more deeply, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I normally end with a question on hope, but I think you did it. Oh. Right? Because like the question oh. is knowing what you know and living what you've lived, what does hope look like for you now? Does it figure into anything? And maybe you have a different answer to that question, but I definitely heard That's it. Mm -hmm. the answer in there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of where I am now is I know things are going to happen. Life is going, as I like to say now, life is going to keep lifing. <laughs> life is just going to keep doing what it does. Things are going to unfold. Surprises are going to happen. Losses are going to roll in. Pains and joy will sit side by side. What I have a kind of say in is giving myself permission to still hang out in the dream state, even while everything is a shit show. And there's power in that. There's power in hanging out in the dream state while everything is a shit show. <laughs> is that the way we want to end this? <laughs> I mean, I think that's a mic drop, in my opinion, right? It is everything that we've been talking about for the last hour, that the both and of things, right? That, yeah. that the additive principle of life is really the thing. It's not the replacement. Yeah. I love this. We really could talk for like hours and hours and hours and hours, but I, I want to wrap us up for the listeners here. And I just like, I'm, ah, I'm so glad that you're in the world and that, that we actually got to meet. So obviously I'm going to link to both the book and the Netflix show from scratch. We'll stick in a link to Eureka because if you haven't seen it, you really should. Everybody, is there anything else that you want people to know about where to find you? Yeah, so uh, you can find me on my website. It's tembylock.com. I have a newsletter. You can certainly sign up for that. And I have a podcast. Now, Megan, I'm following you. <laughs> I like these long-form conversations. It's called Lifted. You can get it anywhere you get podcasts. I'm working on season two now. And um, this has been an absolute delight. I'm honored to speak with you. I'm, I feel so moved and uplifted by your questions. Oh, thank you. You're incredibly thoughtful and you're a powerful, powerful voice in this world. And so thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody, stay tuned for your questions to carry with you coming up right after this break. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway. 
listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fear of the unknown is the greatest fear of all. And for millions of Americans, there is no greater unknown than what to do when faced with an Alzheimer's diagnosis. My name is Dana Torito, and my podcast, The Memory Whisperer, takes a closer look at Alzheimer's disease and those affected by it. Like many of you, I've experienced the disease firsthand. I've been an advocate and care partner for decades and have written extensively about the subject. Each week, I'll talk to people who've been personally affected by the disease and learn how they coped with it. Folks like TV personality Lisa Gibbons. Action is the antidote for fear. And nurse and dementia researcher Dr. Fayron Epps. We no longer can be silent. We have to speak up. We have to share our experiences so we can help each other and learn from each other. Listen to The Memory Whisper on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, I leave you with some questions to carry with you until we meet again. The biggest thing that stuck with me this week was longevity, sort of. Maybe it's like starting before you know what you're doing or why you're doing it. Tembe and I talked for a long time before we got rolling, and we talked for a long time after we wrapped the actual show. We both started this work of publicly talking about grief, trying to find ways to tell a truer, is truer a word? A more accurate story of grief in these formats that we weren't quite sure of, right? In blogs in the early days, in videos in the early days. We both knew we needed to say something, to do something, and we both started with just the next few steps we could see in front of us. And what we've each created in the years since is light years away from those early projects, completely different from what we first envisioned. But those initial steps made it possible to do everything we've done since. So I guess my message here for me (laughs) and for you is do the thing right? You don't have to know how it all works out. You don't have to see 19,000 steps in advance. You don't have to wait until you're sure everything is in its very final form for all time. You just need to start. Take the seed of the story, that first spark of desire, and try it out. Play with it. See where it leads. 
I think that approach applies to so much of life. If there is something in you that's pulling you forward even a little bit, try it out. See what happens next. How about you? What stuck with you from this conversation? Everybody's going to take something different from today's show, but I do hope you found something to hold on to. If you want to tell me how today's show felt for you or you have thoughts on what we covered, let me know. Tag at Refuge and Grief on all the social platforms so I can hear how this conversation affected you. Remember to leave a review of this episode or the show in general on the pod platforms that allow reviews. I know they don't all allow reviews. At least I haven't figured out how to leave a review on every single podcast platform, but they are out there and I love your reviews. Follow the show on It's Okay Pod on TikTok and Refuge in Grief everywhere else to see video clips from the show and use the hashtag It's Okay Pod on all the platforms so not only I can find you, others can too. None of us are entirely okay and it's time we start talking about that together. Yeah? It's okay that you're not okay. You're in good company. That is it for this week. Friends, remember to subscribe to the show. Get your own conversations going by sharing this episode with friends, therapists, and community groups, and random strangers and coffee shops with consent, (laughs) of course. Podcast episodes are really good conversation starters, especially if it's a topic that feels interesting to you, but you're not really sure how to start talking about it. Use the episode as your foot in the door. Coming up next week, Elise Lunin, author of the New York Times bestselling book on our best behavior. Follow the show on your favorite platforms so you don't miss an episode. It's Okay That You're Not Okay, the podcast is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown, co-produced by Elizabeth Fazio, logistical and social media support from Micah, post-production and editing by Houston Tilly, music provided by Wavecrush, and today's background noise provided by the very faint background burble of the water fountain I set up outside to keep the pollinators hydrated in the heat wave. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it! That's really it! And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio. As a high school student. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like (laughs) Change.Dork. Change.Dork. And congratulations, you played yourself. Congratulations, you played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Fear of the unknown is the greatest fear of all, and for millions of Americans, there is no greater unknown than Alzheimer's disease. I'm Dana Torito, a writer and Alzheimer's advocate. On my podcast, The Memory Whisperer, I strive to calm your fears about the disease through thoughtful conversations with experts, care partners, and more. Action is the antidote for fear. Listen to The Memory Whisperer on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.